So that is Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 10. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him, to Jesus, to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. The 15th chapter of Luke is abundantly rich with salvation-themed parables, illustrating the beauty of God's divine grace through His covenant. Now, at the time of teaching these parables, Jesus had been accused of sitting with the sinners, But his parables were particularly helpful in distinguishing between the God he served and is, and will be forevermore, and the God that the Pharisees and the scribes had fashioned for themselves. Now, it was a common issue of discussion in which the Jews often saw the law of God as a mediator for salvation and right standing with God, but they misunderstood the true purpose of the law. This is what the Pharisees and scribes understood. The law of God was given so that man would know the character and nature of God in comparison to his own character and nature. The law revealed God to be holy and just, perfectly righteous in all things. But it also revealed man to be sinful, criminals, and fallen from the glory of God. R.J. Rushduni, who was a scholar and theologian, wrote in his book, Law and Liberty, that this is the crucial difference between biblical law and humanistic law. Laws grounded on the Bible do not attempt to save man or to usher in a new, brave world, a great society or a world peace or a poverty-free world or any such ordeal. The purpose of biblical law and all laws grounded on a biblical faith is to punish and restrain evil and to protect life and property, to provide justice for all people. Man can be changed only by the grace of God the ministry of his word. It did not occur to the Pharisees and Sadducees that they themselves were sinners of the highest order, that in knowing the law, they still believed themselves greater than the average man. If the Messiah really had come, they would have expected him to sit with the religious authorities, fulfilling the first century expectations for Israel's Messiah a supposed liberator who would overthrow Rome. If the Messiah had come to sit with the social outcasts, the sinners, the overlooked, this would have tainted the image of the religious leaders that they 
wanted to protect as set apart and holy. In response to the grumblings of the Pharisees, Christ responded with parables. And these two in particular, which reveal the heart and intention of God as embodied in Christ Jesus. It is fascinating that Jesus would use the image of the shepherd and the sheep, considering its Old Testament usage to describe the relationship between God and Israel. Because in Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 11, it says that, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. You know, the common tendency of sheep is to wander. They have very limited uh, vision, eyesight, and always need a guide to keep them together with their flock. They were creatures that were prone to wander, which speaks volumes of human nature. Given our sinful condition, we are prone to wander from God. Utterly depraved, we are driven away from Him by our own sin. Yet the willingness to leave the 99 sheep in the safe custody of other shepherds, it is assumed, To find the lost sheep that had wandered also speaks of the grace of God. We were created in His image, and therefore we are the Lord's creation. But sin separated us from God. The Lord was and is willing to seek and draw us near to Himself through the covenant of grace through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, we can't derive a meaning and significance for every little detail in a parable because they're generally communicating a central message. But we can still gather the worth of that sheep in the eyes of the shepherd. I mean, in actuality, if a shepherd had in fact lost the sheep, he would have actually have had to pay for the sheep out of his own pocket. Unless the sheep had been killed by a predator, which would have required proof. Then he wouldn't have had to pay for the sheep. But consider that God had no penalty to pay. He had no obligation to pay for a lost one of his creation. And yet, despite having no obligation, he willingly chose to provide a way for our redemption and salvation. Consider the topological symbol or the prophetic symbol of Christ through David in the Old Testament. When protecting his father's sheep, he fought both bear and lion, a risk that was not altogether necessary for a shepherd. In a way, this symbolized Christ who came to fulfill the law, and not just fulfill the law, not... uh, to also pay for our price, for for our sin debt on the cross. He came to fulfill the law, not abolish it, but to conquer both sin and death, establishing His kingdom reign. It's interesting that the Pharisees and scribes did not ascribe this image of lost sheep to themselves, considering how far they had strayed from God despite knowing and teaching His law. But as with many in our present age, Knowing the Word of the Lord and knowing His heart are two different things. For in knowing His Word alone, as the Pharisees and scribes did, we miss out on the covenantal relationship with the Lord. But in knowing His heart, we understand the context and application of His law and Word. See, they had seen the Word, but they had not seen the heart of God in His Word. Instead, reading it from the eyes of men as if it were a human document devoid of historical and theological narrative. But the Lord followed the parable of the lost sheep with the parable of the lost coin, communicating a very similar message. Now, in first century Palestine, Jewish women who were recently married would wear a headband consisting of ten silver coins so as to distinguish them publicly as married women. 
To lose a silver coin would be equivalent to losing a diamond on your wedding ring, or even the wedding ring itself. It would have been shameful and devastating for the wife. Not even if this were to be just a regular silver coin, as part of the house's commerce, a silver coin is valuable, and to lose it would be to lose your own hard-earned wages. This had happened to me once before. I got a check uh, working uh, four years ago at retail, and I lost that check, and I looked everywhere for it, and it was a pretty good check that I had worked about two weeks for, and I couldn't find it anywhere. Now, I never found that check, so I never got to rejoice. But that's what it would be like, losing something valuable. This explains the urgency to find the lost coin. And given the conditions of living in first century Palestine, a lamp would have been necessary to check every dark corner of the house. In the time in Israel, in Jerusalem, you would have had to light a lamp. There was no electricity. There was no flashlights. You'd have to light a lamp and look in every dark corner, areas that you would probably not even look in. Now consider the significance of the coin. Because in Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 to 22, we read of the religious leaders challenging Jesus as to whether the Jews ought to pay taxes to Caesar or not. In verses 19 to 21, we read that they brought him a denarius, which in that day was about a day's wages. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The coin bared the image of Caesar. But when Christ referred to render to God the things that are God's, to what was he referring to that bear the image of God? It is man who bears the image of God. And so the use of the coin in this parable is fitting to illustrate the value that we hold to the owner. It is true that God cares for all his creation. But mankind receives special care that goes far beyond any created thing in the universe. And this is because we are set apart as God's vice regents, His image bearers, His representatives to cultivate the garden of His creation. God seeks out the sinner to draw us to Himself, seeking us wherever we may be, whether in a dark, secluded corner or the dirtiest of holes and cracks in the floors or walls where the coin may have fallen. No matter where we may be, He seeks us out. Francis Thompson, author of The Hound of Heaven, writes about his eventual conversion, his eventual coming to faith in Christ. And he writes in The Hound of Heaven, this great poetic piece, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the mist of tears I hid from him. And under running laughter, up this day in hopes, I sped and shot precipitated, adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. Francis Thompson attempted to flee God. He hid everywhere he could. He, he, he ran from God, diving into the slums of London, into starvation, dirt, drug addiction, disease. All the time he ran, all the time he drifted, all the time he resisted God, But no matter how long or how far he had run, he still heard and felt the hound of heaven. It was God chasing him down. When he finally stopped running, he wrote, Halts by me that footfall. Is my gloom, after all, 
shade of his hand outstretched caressingly? That the Lord would say to him, Ah, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he whom thou seekest. He was astonished after all the running that God wouldn't chastise him, but still embrace him with grace. When reflecting on who found who, William Wilberforce, Christian political activist who abolished the slave trade in England, amongst other things he did for the glory of God, said that God found him as opposed to him finding God. This happened when his butler thought he was going crazy and he was having a moment and he said, Sir, have you found God? He said, No, I think you found me. John Newton, a contemporary of Wilberforce, was a slave trader, an owner of the ships that had transported and sold human beings as cargo. The conditions of slavery were horrible enough, but the most graphic of horrors were the ships carrying slaves. They were floating graveyards. Newton had his hands tainted with blood. He was drenched in sin and his guilt weighed heavily upon him. He suffered greatly, driven to his eventual isolation in his service to God. This man who had been a slave trader, a merchant of death, was found by God's grace. And in recognition of how great a gift Christ's forgiveness was in response to his repentance, he wrote the famous song, Amazing Grace. It was a gradual repentance as even after his self-acclaimed conversion, he continued in his sin as a slave trader. But it was after having been convicted of his sin that he strongly supported the abolition of the slave trade encouraging William Wilberforce to do both the work of God and that of a political activist. Newton himself admitted that in the beginning of becoming a Christian, he says this, I was greatly deficient in many respects. On one hand, I was aware of my more enormous sins. But on the other, I was hardly aware of the innate evils of my heart. I had no comprehension of the spirituality and extent of the law of God. It is the law of God that reveals the sinfulness, the lawlessness of man, and what points us as a tutor to the one who fulfilled the law. The only one who could redeem us from lawlessness and purchase us from the slave market of sin, Christ Jesus. I mourn the loss of the Christian vision that was so strongly held by William Wilberforce which was embraced by John Newton in his later years to advance the gospel of the kingdom through the application of God's Word in all spheres of life. He was active in the public square, a man who refused to remain quiet, who chose to be the sole fighter against the slave trade, taking on the majority of the MPs, members of Parliament in England. We need men and women like Wilberforce today who understand that the gospel of Christ is not a truncated gospel of salvation, I mean, that's it, but a gospel of the kingdom of Christ who rules and reigns, in which God operating through the church will bring the fallen world into submission to His Lordship, to the triumph of His gospel, making the world His footstool. We need men today who will speak against the perversion of the definition of marriage as opposed to attempting to Christianize or sanctify compromise. We need Christian legislators, professionals, and lay people to publicly confront sin for what it is, sin, as opposed to beating around the bush, dancing around the issue in an attempt to avoid the hot topic issues. We've lost this vision of the early church. 
The vision that was articulated by Canadian historian Neil Semple, a Methodist who wrote that the support for church union in early Canada was heavily bound up with the optimistic vision for Canada itself. For if Canada's destiny was to have a spiritual and moral base, a patriotic national church must instill a common set of Christian principles, help preserve national and social stability, guide the country's conscience, and make Canada a legitimate model for the entire world. Consider the words of Semple. He states that the church must instill Christian principles, preserve social stability, and guide the country's conscience. It borrows from Israel's role in the Old Testament as a light to all nations, not as a source of salvation, but as a model of godliness, a nation subject to the lordship of Christ. It is not a gospel that ensures you of hellfire insurance, for many have taken it as such, It is a gospel that renews and redeems, a renewal that pours out into all areas of human life, not privatized, but publicly demonstrated in career, profession, and all other things. But like both Newton and Wilberforce realized, the first step towards achieving this great vision and faith in the gospel of Christ was to recognize one's own sin, the transgression of God's law, and to repent as we turn to the Lord, so that we may be saved, renewed, and redeemed. To know that we are not saved just to wait until the Lord returns, or until the day arrives for us to be with our Lord, but to be a medium by which God uses to advance His kingdom and gospel. What amazing grace. If you recall the lyrics of Amazing Grace, it starts with Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. The greater the transgression of God's law, the greater the appreciation of God's grace. John Newton knew this well. This was why he wrote Amazing Grace. What joy that we find in such stories of redemption. The beauty and majesty of God's magnificent grace. It is the fourfold joy that we find in these two parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin. When a lost sinner is saved by the grace of God, redeemed and transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. There is a joy in the heart of the person found For who by finding saving faith comes to despise God? Such defectors of the faith were never saved to begin with. But the saved rejoice in the Lord, for their salvation has come and their life is now birthed anew as a new creation. There is a joy in the heart of the believer who is used by God as a medium to deliver his message of God's grace and Christ's kingship, the gospel that we find in Scripture. There is a joy in the church over a person who has come to saving faith. It is an entire community that rejoices over the salvation, redemption of a lost one. When the chosen people of God comes alongside the man or the woman who has been won by the irresistible grace of God. And finally, but not least, there is a joy in the heavens over a lost soul who has been won by the gospel of Christ. I must say that out of the four joys of the redemptive work of God, it has often been the third joy, the joy of the church, that has been lacking. 
But this lack of joy over a saved one coming to faith is related to the very decline of evangelism and discipleship in the history of the North American church. I've seen this for myself. When speaking at various events and we do an altar call for those who want to come to faith, and and many people do come to faith. But the church just seems to lack excitement or joy for this wonderful decision that many people had made to come to Christ or even the eagerness to disciple them. Instead, they just look upon them as if saying, this is just a new member to join our church. If we can recover the church's mission on earth as God's representatives, as dictated by Scripture's mandate in both the Garden of Eden and by the Great Commission given to us by Christ, not only in spiritual matters but in all matters of culture and life, then we can expect to see the triumph of the gospel in our day and age and recovering the church's vision for evangelism and discipleship. In what ways are we celebrating the eternal security that we enjoy in Christ? In hymns, doxologies, spoken loud prayers? Have we taken this marvelous and amazing grace for granted as a moment that marked the beginning of our new life and nothing more? as opposed to a continual walk under the grace of God and His covenant? Have we truncated this gospel as a gospel of salvation and nothing more? Come to faith and you're saved and now, well, that's it. You just have to wait till the Lord returns? Or is there more to it? Or are we perhaps the lost one, the lost sheep who had wandered from the ways of the Lord, who had fled the King who sits on His throne? Are we the lost coin hidden away, whether by choice or ill intention, in the darkest of mires, thinking we are out of reach for God's grace. There is no sin, no trespass, no transgression, no, so great that would keep you from the grace of God. Then, repenting of your sins, you can receive forgiveness and salvation in Christ and enter into the covenant relationship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Let us pray together to glorify our Father in heaven, to walk in His grace and according to His law, to restore the church in His missional calling, and to intercede for our friends and colleagues, even the complete stranger, that if not knowing the Lord, they may come to repentance and saving faith.